Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 134 and it's April 1902. The Boer military and political leadership has been permitted by the British to travel to Pretoria by train and will meet with Lord Kitchener to talk peace. All the fighting of the previous two years and six months have led both sides to this moment. And yet, there is one more major bloody battle left, which is difficult to fathom other than to say the Boers launched a cavalry charge that wouldn't have looked out of place in the Napoleonic era. It was a hugely courageous attack led by Commandant Potkita and General Kemp on the 11th of April that both surprised and was admired by the British who watched. Viewing the details of the Battle of Rudeval, you can understand Kemp and Potkita's act as a brave yet suicidal final salvo from a pugnacious people. Rudeval means Red Valley, and the valley surrounded by gentle slopes would be splattered with blood by the end of the day. It could have been worse, as we'll see, with Ian Hamilton during a General Buller and hesitating when his foe was clearly defeated and the mounted infantry's woeful shooting. Rudeval is around 200 miles west of Pretoria, and the very day that General Delaray with Boerta and De Vett steamed into the Transvaal capital, his men were receiving a terrible hiding. The success was not so much the credit of Ian Hamilton as to the officers and men of the 13 columns who had finally caught up with a large Boer commander. It was perspiration, inspiration and sheer luck that caused the enemy to make a bad decision. Afterwards, Hamilton and Kekovich called it a real soldier's battle, fought out on the kind of terms that British generals had despaired of ever seeing again in their lifetime. As Thomas Pakenham calls it, it was a final reassuring echo from the 19th century. The British troops had been frustrated for 30 months as they marched up and down the felt, hunting the Boers, who were like ghosts. The terrain didn't help. It was half wilderness, these plains, to the west of Johannesburg and Pretoria. A huge diamond-shaped box enclosed by the lines between Lichtenburg, Klagstorp, Freiburg and the Vaal River. 200 miles of rolling sandy plains intersected by shallow meandering river valleys. They were mostly dry except in the rainy season. Delaray's home ground. He knew every inch and was deadly on it, like a pirate on the open sea or like a shark, as Pakenham calls him. Like a shark, Delaray knew how to stay hidden until he struck and as quickly how to disappear into the depths of the felt. The rolling plains could obscure a large group of men, and the Boers were to learn that when they forgot this, the cost would be high. While Delaray fretted in his railway coach heading into Pretoria about the future of the war, his men were approaching this seminal battlefield in good spirits. Remember, they had only recently taken Methuen prisoner and seized six artillery pieces and two pom-poms at the Battle of Tuerbosch. They were on a high, but Delaray's officers were to make a major mistake without their famous leader. With Methuen ruled out of action because of his broken leg, Kitchener needed someone to take charge of the columns awaiting action in the western Transvaal. So he dispatched his second-in-command, Ian Hamilton, to this desolate region, already drying out as the rainy season had technically ended. There were no blockhouses here because there was very little water. This had made for a rather ragged British strategy. Hamilton had arrived in Klagstorp on the 6th of April to take command with a staff of two, an adjutant and an Indian batman. His plan was not very subtle. Will Sampson, the intelligence chief, had lost the commando again, and Rawlinson was in a bad mood after being sent on a wild goose chase. But Hamilton had a trick up his sleeve, and on this day, a massive dose of that wonderful potion called luck. 
first three of the four columns would head southwestly from the Vaal River. Meanwhile, Rochefort, who led the fourth column, would guard the line at the Vaal. Then Hamilton would suddenly swing hard south at the point where two small rivers, the Bruxplate and the Little Hearts River, flowed into the Great Hearts River. It was a relatively fertile area in the drylands and was in the centre of the box formed by the Western Blockhouse lines. It was also where De La Rey's commandos liked to appear at times, their happy hunting ground, so Hamilton guessed that's where they'd be happiest, as their leader headed to talk peace. It was also close to Boschbult and Tuerbosch, recent battlegrounds. Hamilton was gambling on the Boers being forced to move southwards as he moved southwest, and he also hoped that his sudden swing to the south at the confluence of the small rivers would then catch the commando napping. Time for a scrap, Rawlinson said to Hamilton, and with De La Rey and De Vett on their way to peace talks, it was a good chance to smash up their subordinates. Hamilton agreed, and had actually written to Winston Churchill saying, Once more, all my fortunes on the die. Another roll of the dice. So they duly rolled out of Claxthorpe on the 10th of April, with Lord Kitchener's brother Walter Kitchener leading off at 6am and Rawlinson at 6.45. Kekovich was already on the felt. Hamilton then had a lucky break. Boers had been spotted to the southwest, so he dashed off a telegram to Kekovich. This is where he was to get really lucky. Kekovich, you see, didn't receive the telegram and was out of place. But after quick work, the English managed to prepare themselves along a 20-mile line from close to the Great Hearts River all the way to Boschbult. They dug trenches and were in groups of 100 or 150 in intervals of half a mile. Boer scouts were watching, but for once, they did not notice the final British movements. A fatal misreading of the geography. Portkita had been confused by the reports. What were the British up to? Surely they were headed west? Because Kekovich's final moves were actually a mistake, that had thrown up a false flag. Portkita and Kemp's analysis was flawed because Kekovich had moved after the Boer scouts reconnoitred the lines in the early evenings. Here was the luck that Hamilton needed. Furthermore, it was before dawn on the 11th of April that Kekovich ordered his men to close ranks, moving 3,000 men onto Rudeval, the valley that lay inside the gently sloping hills with a rocky ridge. The enemy did not know that the westernmost part of the British line had morphed from its weakest to its strongest. The Boer reconnaissance of the previous evening was out of date. It was a steel hook that needed some bait. And the unfortunate bait was the small mounted infantry unit of 40 men led by Major Roy. At 7.15, Roy witnessed a singularly airy scene. A wave of 1,500 mounted Boers, their rifles at the ready, slouch hats tilted against the sun, sweeping knee to knee up the hillside towards them. The moment was so unreal that for a second most of Roy's men thought they were British. They were riding so openly and so organised. That was quickly dispelled as the Boers opened fire from the saddle using their new tactic with the plum. Portkita was in the front, dressed, oddly enough, in a blue shirt. They broke over Roy's unit, killing half the English mounted infantry in minutes. The Boers continued forward this large commando, determined to increase the effect of their tactical surprise. However, the terrain was not in their favour. The gently sloping and undulating landscape hid more than the dry river beds. The slopes hid a large column of British troops under Kekovich, and Portita and Kemp were riding straight into disaster. There were no trees, no copies to aid escape, no thunderstorm, no cliffs, no kraals. Half a mile to the north, 
A line of boulders marked the stony hillside of Rudeval, and behind this curtain, Kekovich's two columns lurked. The Boers galloped onwards to destruction. Just before Rudeval, Portkita's riders had to crest a small ridge in the felt, and from there they spotted Kekovich's column. There were 3,000 men in close order, clearly protected by two pom-poms and six field guns. What's more, they were dismounted and ready for action. Portkita had no heavy weapons to oppose them, and yet both he and Kemp yelled to their men to break into a canter, and then even more bizarrely formed themselves into a massed phalanx around four deep. Instead of the usual tactic of breaking into smaller groups and fleeing, this was going to be a charge of horsemen from another century. The British artillery opened fire, tearing holes in the phalanx. Still the Boers came on, ignoring the fact that many of them were being shot down. Kikovic's infantry was now lying on their stomachs and firing on the Boers, but they were shooting like beginners, or the casualty rate would have been much higher. Some of the raw yeomen still broke and fled as this terrifying charge of the Boers gained momentum. Signalling officer Lieutenant Carlos Hickey hauled out his revolver and threatened to shoot them in. I tried to get hold of these faint-hearted ones to line them up on the flank, but nothing would stop them. He didn't have the heart to shoot them either, so they fled into the felt. Hickey turned back to the battle, but it was already over. Scattered across the felt lay more than 50 dead boers, and right at the front, not 100 yards from the British lines, lay the prone body of General Portita with his distinctive blue shirt. He'd been hit three times before he died, twice in the body, once in the head. The stream of bullets and shells then caused the Boers to turn and retreat. Ian Hamilton now pondered his course of action. Should he immediately chase after the Boer survivors or gather his forces? He dithered for an hour and a half, worried about Kekovich's convoy of wagons, and in that time, General Kemp had taken his surviving Boers off the battlefield. Hamilton's men did catch 50 stragglers and recovered Methuen's field guns and a pom-pom that General Delaray had seized at Twilbosch. Hamilton admitted later that had his mounted infantry been better shots, at least 300 Boers would have died. And then, in an incongruous sight, which is regular in war, Kekovich's men sat down to brew their tea, some using captured Boer kettles. Tommy Atkins sitting amongst the dead, drinking tea, including a few who then took snaps using these small Kodak cameras. One of these pictures shows the body of Portita, while British troops appear to be eating breakfast nearby. African drivers are yelling at oxen, wounded men are being tended to. Carlos Hickey wrote later, What brave fellows they were who charged up in such gallant style. It was really a wonderful sight the way they came on. Portita must have been a splendid man. Suddenly a British officer nearby found a wounded boer lying on the grass, dressed in British khaki. Hickey listened as the officer said Kitchener had ordered these men to be executed as spies and directed a trooper to shoot the wounded man. Hickey stepped forward, protesting that the troops felt too much respect for his bravery, and the Boer was spared. So ended the last formal battle of the Boer War. Around 50 Boers died, and a similar number were wounded. Another 50 or so were captured, while on the British side, 13 were killed, 75 wounded. I find it symbolic that in this saga we have followed from day one that the last battle should end with echoes of a lost era of chivalry. A cavalry charge led from the front by a Boer commander who gave his life for the struggle against an empire. It is also important to note that throughout the struggle, the Boers had fought using African tactics developed over centuries of fighting on the continent. And yet, in the final battle, 
they reverted to European-style old-fashioned cavalry charge. The news of this momentous battle reached the peace talkers in Pretoria. It was the 12th of April, and they were about to sit down. As I explained last week, Kitchener had purposefully left Lord Milner out of the first round of negotiations because he wanted some kind of wriggle room, knowing, of course, that Milner was hoping to have complete control over South Africa in the future without interference from the troublesome Boers. President Berger of the Transvaal was gloomy as he sat down with Kitchener, remaining mostly silent after the Boers handed over their proposal to the British Army commanding officer. Lord Kitchener was taken aback by what he saw as the effrontery of the Boer demands. He expected them to address the elephant in the room, that is, the continued independence of Boer republics, which was no longer viable. They had been fighting a war for years over this specific subject, and yet Berger and President Steyn of the Free State seemed to ignore this matter. Instead, they handed him a proposal that basically allowed some opening up of what they saw as their independent countries. What they wanted included arrangements of a customs union, granting of the franchise for all, demolition of forts including blockhouses, equal rights for Afrikaans and Dutch and English, a reciprocal amnesty and arbitration on any matters to include equal numbers from both sides. President Steyn by now was a sick man and also bitterly hostile, but he remained a gentleman as the discussions developed. The Boers were very polite, Kitchener noted in letters, but the free staters are a very low-class lot compared to the Transvaalers, said Kitchener in the Middleton papers. The Boers appear to be rather frightened of me. I gave it to them pretty straight on their treatment of natives. They are much afraid of a native uprising, and I have told them that they are entirely responsible if such an event occurs. It was precisely the question of black South Africans that interested the British, but not because they were suddenly imbued with the spirit of equal rights. Milner had made it very clear to Kitchener that black labour was needed on the mines and arrangements had to be made to improve the treatment of blacks. As with everything in this conflict, the peace talks were rife with contradiction. The British wanted South Africa to get back to work as soon as possible to recover from the disaster, and that included black workers. Kitchener relished his role of preaching humanity to the Boers, and he made the most of the opportunity to parade before the cabinet as a man of feeling as he prepared his documents later. He repeated several times that he had given it to the generals pretty hot on the native question. Yet he also strongly opposed Milner and the other English politicians' belief that the Boers should be forced to accept unconditional surrender. Surprisingly, for Kitchener, who was liable to be pretty clumsy in most discussions, he somehow found it in his intellectual power at this very point to handle the British cabinet, the Boer leaders, and his principal colleague, Lord Milner, with remarkable dexterity. So imagine, if you will, Kitchener's large office. He sat alone with only a clerk as an assistant, facing him with the very core of the Boer opposition to his empire. The remnants of the governments were present. Reitz, Senior, and Herzog were there as legal counsel. Kitchener, though, would not be alone for long. After two days, Lord Milner joined him. Now we had four different protagonists. President Steyn wanted independence or death. President Berger wanted an honourable surrender. Kitchener wanted a knockout victory on the battlefield, and Milner was aggressive. He wanted unconditional surrender. Steyn was explicit as he said, The Boers must not lose their self-respect. 
By that he meant their independence. Thus, both parties realised that this would be a protracted peace talk process, as had been the war. I must give Kitchener some credit here. No one walked out. Milner was infuriated by Stain, thinking him ridiculous, and behind the scenes, the High Commissioner was trying to ensure that the talks actually broke down. As a journalist, I covered the negotiations between the apartheid government and the ANC, called Codessa, and some of the toing and froing there reminds me of this negotiation process. Kitchener now acted like a strategic thinker at the top of his game. He made what Martin Bosenbrook calls uncharacteristically tactful use of the telegraph connection to put pressure on the Boers without actually scaring them off. And of course, the reports of Roerval had filtered back to the British and the Boers sitting in Pretoria, and this had a major impact on General Louis Botha and President Berger in particular. Had they been handed a document then and there by the British declaring unconditional surrender, they would probably have signed it. The Secretary of State back in London was emphatic. A grovelling surrender is preferred. A lengthy telegram from the British government back to Kitchener in Pretoria stated, His Majesty's government shares with all its heart in the earnest wish of the Boer representatives and trusts that the present negotiations will lead there. Stain was unmoved as he sat impassively when he heard that the British government position was unchanged. But they have already declared in the clearest manner and have to repeat that they cannot take into consideration any proposals which have as basis the sanction of the independence of the former republics which are now formally annexed to the British crown, continued the Secretary of State's message. The writing was on the wall. General Christian de Vett was growing increasingly restless as he heard the various parties take up their desperate positions. Both representatives of the British government, he means Kitchener and Milner, insisted that we should negotiate with them, taking the surrender of our independence for granted. We could not do so, said De Vitt. Well, we'll return to what happened in the next episode, as these negotiations were going to take more than a month. We must call a halt to proceedings. Time's up. Thanks to all those who've sent me comments and support this week. I really value the interest shown from around the world. By the way, there's been a spark in listenership from Norway and Mozambique. How about that? When I began the series in 2017, I had no idea just how the tale of the Anglo-Boer War would resonate. So many people have relatives who fought in this war. Russians, Turks, French, even Sri Lankans, where many Boers were sent as prisoners of war when the island was known as Ceylon. So please rate the podcast if you can on iTunes. You can contact me via the website abwarpodcast.com or through my Twitter feed at Des Latham. Keep washing hands. If you're self-isolating like two billion others on planet Earth right now, may you stay strong. Fuspate. Till next week. Goodbye. <laughs> Een zonder gedaan langs die mooie rivierse waal, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O, breng mij terug naar die Oud-Transvaal, daar waar mijn Sari woont. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn Sari Mare. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom.